Boladar, Kloisodigethli, good morning and welcome to Hay. Um, and to the number 14 in our series, which we do in conjunction with Cambridge University. We're delighted to wel welcome Abigail Brundine here today. Um, She's normally talking to very keen, interesting students, so uh, you're going to make her work even harder today. She's Senior Lecturer in the Department of Italian at Cambridge University, and she's also a Fellow of St. Catherine's College. She specialises in the Renaissance and early modern literature and culture of, of Italy. And please would you welcome Abigail Brundine. Good morning. This is a very different kind of gig for me than uh, what I normally do. I feel a little bit like a rock star with a microphone attached to the back of my neck. So um, uh, I hope that we manage to speak to each other in a, a, a mutual language. And um, I asked a colleague of mine what the audience at Hay was like. I said, what, what should I expect? And she said, oh, everyone's there to have a great time. So just don't worry about it. They'll be really positive and they'll have great questions for you and nobody's going to ask you one of those classic academic questions where uh, they tell you how much they enjoyed your presentation and then gradually deconstruct it piece by piece <laughs> until you're in a pool on the floor. So I'm not expecting any questions like that today. So um, as the introduction said, I teach in the Department of Italian at Cambridge. Um, I think I would describe myself as a literary historian in that um, I, I study the literature of the Renaissance and early modern period in Italy, but I'm interested in the way texts were read and received and understood by the audiences for which they were produced. And I'm particularly interested in the kinds of texts that are difficult to access, that uh, perhaps were not heard very clearly by their contemporary audiences, texts by non-canonical voices, um, marginalised voices. And in my re research to date, that's included um, the voices of... Uh, religious heretics. It's also included the voices of women. And what I'm going to present to you this morning is um, some recent research that I've been doing on um, uh, the experiences of girls and young women who were um, going into convents in Italy in the 17th century um, and using literary texts, trying to probe the reactions of the girls themselves to these events, which were, of course, life-changing, but which were events which they didn't generally have much say in. So sometime in the second half of the 17th century, in the town of Pesaro, which is on Italy's Adriatic coast, a young girl called Margherita sat down to write a poem. She began it like this. How can it be? On the threshold of the false world, instead of fleeing, I linger. And why do I not hide my head in a penitence veil to shield me from the world's gaze? If the world can give me nothing but pain, then why do I take pleasure in this sinful world? What voice is this that entices me? It is my senses. Be silent, since I have not ears for such a siren. This is a, a rough translation of my own, of the poem, which goes on for a number of verses. It's a long ode. Um, Margarita was about to take her vows as a nun, and this poem presents her the evening before her vestition ceremony, before her clothing ceremony, uh, which will take place on the following day. She imagines herself sitting in front of the mirror in her bedchamber. She's gazing at her reflection. 
Uh, she's surprised, as the lines I just read you make clear, by her own resistance to the event that's about to take place. Instead of welcoming her new life as a nun, she's clinging on to the trappings of her former existence, her existence as a young, rich society girl. She looks at her reflection in the mirror. She admires the jewels that she's wearing, her necklaces and rings, and she urges herself to pull them off and throw them away. Uh, she lifts her heavy locks of hair, and she imagines how it will feel to have them shaved off on the following day. Finally, she turns and addresses her mother, who seems to be weeping somewhere on the sidelines. She says, but what thorn of pain shadows your brow, my sorrowing mother? Ah, do not cry. In offering me to God, you lose nothing. You offer to the sun nothing more than a shadow. Take comfort, and while I shut myself away from you, come. Dry the tears from your cheeks, if you do not wish with your weeping to hinder my progress towards heaven. Um, as the poem moves on, Margarita uses various images to map the uh, threshold that she's going to pass on the following day. She compares herself with Mary Magdalene. Um, she imagines herself arriving in a beautiful paradise-like garden. And finally, in the very last verse, she turns again to her mother and she says, don't worry, mother. I will be completely happy. And that's how the poem ends. Sarò felice a piena, she says. I will be completely happy. So I started with a, a small sample of the kind of raw material that I've been dealing with. But before developing that a little bit further, I'll just backtrack and, and fill in a little bit of the, the historical context for you. Because there's a very important question hanging over this material, which is why would a girl from a wealthy background seemingly not altogether secure in any kind of spiritual vocation, why would she be destined for a convent in 17th century Italy? What kinds of circumstances would take her there? Can you see the slides okay? Do we need to put down those lights somehow? Because I've got lots of beautiful pictures. It would be a pity not to be able to see them. It's the sunshine. We can't do anything about the sunshine. <laughs> Drat. <laughs> Is that better? Dear, sorry. Okay, well, squint and do your best. Um, okay, so from the mid-16th century in Italy, there's a radical social and economic change that has a very dramatic impact, in particular, on the lives of upper-class women. Uh, essentially, there's a period of, and I'm, I'm kind of condensing an awful lot of Italian history and economic history here, but there's a period of economic contraction, and this coincides with the adoption of a policy of wealth conservation amongst the upper classes. And, and the main uh, uh, mode of this policy is to restrict marriages to only one or two per generation, and this way a family can uh, condense its patrimony uh, avoid paying out multiple large dowries and concentrate wealth down a single line of inheritance. And this becomes uh, the pragmatic practice that upper-class families adopt. So, uh, so you have increasingly few young noblemen uh, on the marriage market, and at the same time, the cost of dowries needed to make a good match necessarily goes through the roof. So there's a massive inflation in the dowry market. And the implications of this change are immediately apparent. Prospects for young women contract from secular marriages to sacred marriages. Uh, girls, instead of being married, are placed in convents. The convents fill, and this is the, the uh, 
uh, result of this particular phenomenon. The figures themselves are quite astounding. So in 17th century Milan, 75% of the population of gentlewomen in the city were living in convents uh, in, in that period. So it gives you an idea of how extensive this practice was. So a family visit on a Sunday, I don't know if you can see this rather beautiful image, but a family visit would probably mean an afternoon spent in the parlour of your local convent, sitting at the grate, chatting with all your female family members on the other side of the screen. So when we hear statistics like that, 75% of the female population of the Milanese nobility, we can safely make an assumption, which is that it can't be the case that all of those women had a religious vocation. What we can also assume is that almost none of those women had a choice. And it's from the second half of the 16th century that the phenomenon of what Italians call monacazione forzata, that is a forced vocation, a forced monarchization, if you like, comes to the fore as a widespread social problem. So girls being forced against their will to take their vows and become nuns. And this is a problem that the church is very aware of in the period, and they try to legislate against it from the 16th century. Um, they try to ensure that girls come of their own free will. They institute cross-examination by the local bishop, for example, um, imposing a minimum age of 12 years for a girl to take her vows. Um, so there are some well-meaning attempts to legislate, yet convents remain a key tool in the family strategies of the Italian nobility, and convent populations continue to rise very rapidly throughout the 17th century. Now, there's been some really interesting and useful attention to this phenomenon in recent years, both within academia and outside academia. Some excellent studies and uh, fictional accounts. I've put a couple of examples up here. A uh, wonderful book about disobedient Venetian nuns by my Cambridge colleague Mary Lavin, Virgins of Venice. Very evocative novel about the musical Nuns of Ferrara by Sarah Dunant, Sacred Hearts. I think she's speaking after me. Um, so from works like these, we've come to have a much fuller understanding of what it was actually like for the girls and women who passed their lives inside these convents. We know that a genteel convent was rather a comfortable place. We know that... Uh, Although Margarita, in her poem, envisages casting off all her worldly luxuries, removing her jewels and losing her comfortable life, that in fact, she could live a rather luxurious life inside a convent. Although, officially, nuns were prohibited from owning uh, anything luxurious, uh, the practice of bringing in a rather opulent convent trousseau when you went inside the, the, the convent was uh, very common. You would sign all your possessions over to the abbess, who was the only member of the community allowed to own things, and then she would loan them back to you on a permanent basis. And these kinds of legal agreements between the abbess of a convent and the convent nuns are very common, and we have a lot of examples extant from the period. We also have inventories of nuns' possessions, so we know what kinds of things they kept in their cells. We know that they had bedsteads of hardwood, feather mattresses, embroidered curtains, soft coverlets, bird cages in gilt, paintings in gilded frames, musical instruments, harpsichords, lutes, vials, even on a few occasions a trombone. <laughs> we also know that the convent was one of the few places where a girl could get an education. 
so girls as young as seven could be lodged in convents in order to be taught by the nuns. And then they would either leave when a suitable marriage was arranged or take their vows and remain there for life. Um, and it's no accident, I think, that the majority of female authored literature in Italy through the Middle Ages and Renaissance is produced within and around convents because those are the places where women had access to books, were literate, and had the time to read and write as they didn't in any other walk of life. So it seems that by the standards of the time, conditions were not bad for girls from good families entering convents. They could look forward to a life which was not deprived of material comforts, not without congenial company. Often they'd be housed together with a number of family members, sisters, aunts, cousins, all together in the same convent. Um, crucially, a young woman had a much better chance of surviving her childbearing years if she was a nun than in any other kind of life. But of course, there's another key factor to take into account. Um, and that is what happened at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent in the second half of the 16th century when the Catholic Church regrouped, sat down, and, and tried to clarify Catholic practice in the face of the threat from the uh, Northern Reformation. At the Council of Trent, the Church imposed a strict rule of enclosure on communities of nuns. They issued a decree. Here it is. You may or may not be able to see it, but I'll read it for you. Uh, at the 25th session of the council in December 1563, which was very brief, but had a massive impact on the lives of women. So it said, after religious profession, no man, none may go out of her convent on any pretext, even for a short time, except for a legitimate reason approved by the bishop, notwithstanding any concessions and privileges. And no one of any kind or condition or sex or age may enter the convent without the permission of the bishop or superior given in writing under pain of excommunication automatically incurred. So as I said, brief and to the point, but dramatic in its impact. However comfortable it might have been, one irrefutable fact remains. Each nun is confined for life to the parameters of her convent. She can never leave the buildings. She can never see another building, another garden, another field, another prospect. So let's turn back now to Margarita's poem, and I'll just tell you a little bit more about that. It's found written on a scrap of paper stored in a folder together with hundreds of other loose pages of poetry from the 16th and 17th centuries in the State Archive in Florence. Um, most of the poems in this folder, as I worked through it over many hot, sweaty hours one summer in Florence, are by men to the families of young girls and the girls themselves who are going into convents. So local poets who are in some way connected to the family of the girl. Only a very, very tiny number of the poems are by the girls themselves. So it's very easy to miss these very brief snatches of a female voice. Um, and I think it underlines what an unusual historical artifact this is um, to discover in this way offers us a very rare chance to hear from a girl who had very little input into the choices being made for her and was probably very rarely listened to by her contemporaries. Now, this genre of poems is one that hasn't really been much studied until now by either Italian or English or American Anglophone scholars, a genre of poems in verse 
often sonnets, although not always, sometimes with musical settings, and they're written for girls, nell'atto di monacarsi, they say in Italian, so in the act of becoming a nun. In other words, they're produced to be distributed and read aloud at the parties that were held when a girl became a nun. Uh, so when a girl became a nun in 17th century Italy, it wasn't a private matter, uh, nor was it a small event. It was a massive local party, if you like, uh, especially if the girl was upper class. So uh, mirroring secular marriages, a sacred marriage, and untaking her vows would involve the whole community in extended partying, often over a number of days and weeks. Uh, becoming a nun itself was a very lengthy process. It could involve up to four separate ceremonies, the entry into the convent, the vestition ceremony or clothing ceremony when the, the girl's head would be shaved and she would change into a convent habit, um, the public vows and finally the consecration ceremony. Now, I don't know how well you can see it, but this painting, sorry, fiddling with the mic, this painting by Gabriele Bella uh, is an 18th century uh, picture of what a convent entry was like in Venice. It's called... Uh, robing of a noble woman in San Lorenzo, and what it shows us is precisely the vestition or clothing ceremony at a Venetian convent. We're seeing the scene from the public part of the church, but these are the grills that separate the two halves of the church, the half where the nuns sit and the half where the, the public visiting sit. Uh, this means that the nuns can participate in the ceremony, but they can't be seen by the public in any way that might be improper. Uh, the young girl is kneeling here in the middle and having a, a veil placed over her head. Uh, these chaps ranged along the sides here in coloured robes are musicians and singers who were there to perform the very elaborate settings that were written for these kinds of occasions. In fact, there would also be a choir of nuns in the other half of the church performing with them. These, um, these musical settings are really interesting and have been studied in some detail by a colleague of mine in the States called Craig Monson. And um, what he's discovered is that because it wasn't proper for the two choirs and, and musical groups to rehearse together prior to the ceremony, the music was deliberately written to start very simply and then grow more complex as the two sets of voices got used to each other on either side of the church because they couldn't see each other, so they had to do it all by uh, sound. Then in the, the main body of the church, down here you can see uh, the Venetian nobles who are attending. They're not seemingly paying very much attention. Some are sitting, mainly the ladies along the sides here, and then all these chaps are kind of mingling in the body of the church, chatting in small groups and paying no attention to the poor girl who's being robed in the middle. Um, what this tells us is how many people came when a, a nun was robed like this and uh, what kind of occasion it was, that it was a sort of celebratory, party-like occasion. Uh, after these proceedings, you'd then go back to the convent parlour for a big party, uh, usually a banquet, tables laid out. The family of the new nun would pay for a large amount of food and drink to be served. Musicians might perform. Uh, speeches be made, poetry recited, etc., etc. Uh, lots of money would be spent by important local families on these parties. They were important status symbols. Uh, sometimes a play might be performed. Here's an example 
uh, of a musical, sacred musical drama from the mid-18th century, which we can see was written, oh, pardon me, per la monacazione dell'eccellentissima signora Teresa Francone. So for the becoming a nun of this woman, Teresa Francone. Uh, it's quite an interesting choice of subject matter, this actually, for a, a nun's uh, vestition. This is uh, the liberation of Bethusa. So it tells the story of Judith seducing and then beheading Holofernes in order to rescue her city from starvation. So it seems like a, an interestingly bold and unconventional female role model for a, a nun, but anyway. Um, and poems would also be performed at these parties. Um, and these are the poems that I've been interested in recently. A huge number of them have survived from the 17th and 18th century. They're often printed on very large sheets of paper, almost like programs that might be distributed at the event, sometimes stuck up on the walls like posters. Um, some Venetian examples printed rather beautifully on colored silk, which seemingly was hung along the streets that the, the, the nun would process down on her way to the chapel, so almost like bunting, poetic bunting, if you like. Generally speaking, they're very conventional. So a male poet congratulates the girl on her new life, tells her that it's going to be simply marvellous to be a bride of Christ, and then makes lots of social overtures to her family, which is what he's really interested in, um, extolling their coat of arms, etc., etc. Um, so it's a kind of display poetics. It's very secular. It's quite playful. It's quite fun. There's lots of anagrams and wordplay on the girls' names. Nuns, of course, when they go into convents, change their names. So they take on new spiritual names, which means they have lots and lots of names to make anagrams out of. So that becomes a big part of the poetry. And then there are the very few poems written by the girls themselves. Um, and these are decidedly less conventional, as might be expected. Um, as you can see from, from this is a, another example from the Florentine archives, nothing like the kind of beautifully printed, large format um, ceremonial publications of the other poems. This is scrawled on a scrap of paper and shoved into the folder in the middle of all the examples by male poets. They don't have proper titles. They don't have proper dates. How they ended up in these folders in the Florentine archive remains an open question. What they do offer us is this all too rare snatch of the voices of the women themselves. Um, women who, despite being at the center of these ceremonies, were really rather incidental in the proceedings themselves. Now, Margarita's poem, although it it's offers a rare degree of honesty about the difficulty she's having with this transition, ends up being a very dutiful poem. She promises her mother she's going to be happy. She's going to do her best. Um, there's another voice that reaches us from the same period in Italy, which offers a very, very different take on the processes of convent entry and the experience of life in a convent. And this is the last um, voice that I want to share with you this morning. So this is the voice of a nun whose name was Arcangela Tarabotti, uh, that was her convent name. Her, her given name was Elena, and she changed it to Arcangela, Archangel, when she went into the convent of Sant'Anna in Venice at the age of 11. She blames her incarceration on the fact that she's lame. She inherited a deformity of the leg from her father, and it makes her unmarriageable. And she says, convents are the storehouses of the ugly and the maimed. 
That's how she describes it. Uh, we know an inordinate amount about what it felt like to be a nun with non, no vocation in this period from Arcangela Torabotti. She was a prolific writer and a very, very uh, outspoken critic of the system that had caused her to end up in this convent. She was extremely angry, she was extremely honest, and she was an excellent writer. So she expressed herself with great erudition and, and conviction. So uh, this slide shows you the works that Tarabotti produced. Um, and I'll just take you through a few of them just uh, to give you a little map. Um, the, the ones in square brackets at the bottom of the list we know about from references to them, but we haven't yet rediscovered the manuscripts themselves, so we don't have copies of those works. So the first and most famous is L'Inferno Monacale. You can see that it was first published in 1990. That's because it was banned immediately by uh, the Venetian authorities, placed on the index of prohibited books, and Tarabotti was forced to write, uh, uh, to recant those views and write another book, Il Paradiso Monacale, immediately <laughs> afterwards in order to apologize for her book. L'Inferno Monacale, a convent hell, is a polemic precisely against the, uh, the practice of forcing girls into convents. Uh, it blames the state, the Venetian state, and the patriarchy. Um, and as I say, it was refused a publication license, perhaps unsurprisingly. Uh, further down, L'Antisatira. This is a point-by-point -point defense of women against conventional misogynistic attacks. So this is a, 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 a very a sort of proto-feminist defense. Uh, uh, then some, a couple of slightly more conventional works. Che le donne siano della stessa specie degli uomini. That means women are of the same species as men. And this was a refutation of a Latin treatise that had been published shortly before arguing that women didn't have souls. So it didn't really matter what you did with them because they, did, they weren't like men. They weren't made the same way. Then we have la semplicità ingannata. That means simplicity deceived. I think you're getting a, a sense of the theme here coming back in again. So this is a treatise in three books attacking enforced vocations, lack of female education, and the state's complicity in the suppression of women across those three volumes. Then we have uh, a lost work called Purgatorio delle Mal Maritate. That means the purgatory of women who've made bad marriages. So, <laughs> so she's kind of moving on to a slightly different but related theme there. So this gives you a flavor of the kind of thing that Tarabotti wrote. Um, and as I said, she places the blame squarely on the Venetian state and the patriarchal system. She says, the system acts in the interests of political cohesion, and it ignores the rights of the individual to choose the course of their lives. She says that if you sacrifice women to reason of state in this way, you actually pollute the convents anyway, because you fill them with women who don't want to be there, so that the women who do have a vocation can't get on. The convents are polluted. Um, she dedicated L'Inferno Monacale to the serene, most serene Republic of Venice. And she said, this work is for you, especially in order that you can think about what you're doing. The response was to ban it. <clears throat> As one might expect, when Tarabotti talks about the entry of a girl into a convent, she presents it in a rather different way uh, from the more conventional uh, uh, poetic tributes to this moment. 
So Margarita's poem, as we saw, shows her sort of struggling against her own desires. Uh, Tarabotti depicts a girl who is completely abandoned to profound grief. And this is the extract from uh, L'Inferno Monacale, where she discusses uh, the convent entry, the ceremony uh, that the girl is going through. A girl lies prostrate, her lips touching the stone floor. A black cloth is thrown over her, and lighted candles are placed at her feet and at her head. Up above her, the litanies are being sung. All the signs suggest that she is dead. She is a witness at her own funeral. From within her bier, she accompanies the singing with tears and sobs, sacrificing all her senses to suffering and pain. So a highly dramatic depiction. But it's very notable that Tarabotti dares to offer us a, a, a response to this ritual, which isn't one of willing self-sacrifice. It is one of total grief and despair. Uh, it's notable that when you go and look at the records um, of the local church authorities, when bishops did interview girls, they almost always, in 99.99% of the time, tell their bishop that they became a nun willingly and of their own volition. They always said that. So it's difficult to get anyone to tell us that they didn't. Tarabotti is the only voice we know of who says that, quite openly. In fact, she goes on to advise girls to disobey their parents in this, if in nothing else. She says, uh, your parents are not acting in your own best interests when they force this upon you, and you should disobey them. And she takes a similar uh, stand in response to the other rituals of convent entry. She says that cutting off a girl's hair is a crime against God, that God gave women beautiful hair as a sign of their virtue, and that to shave it off in this way is a brutality against women. She also complains a good deal about the fact that the nice clothes that a girl gets to wear when she goes into a convent are in no way as nice as the nice clothes that a girl gets to wear when she becomes a secular bride. She's got a big gripe about that. And actually, she has a very um, uh, a sort of modern take on that. She writes a whole defense of girls dressing up, very sort of Spice Girls-esque. You know, I do it for my own sake and not to please the guys. And girls should be allowed to wear nice clothes. She's, she feels very shut out from a whole aspect of Venetian society, that is dress and fashion, which is absolutely crucial to the way in which people are read and identified and understood. Um, her other complaints about convent life are much as we might expect. She blames her family for forgetting her. She says they never come to visit her. In her published letter book, there is a notable absence of uh, communication with her parents or with her sisters. Uh, she laments bitterly her lack of freedom, the boredom and claustrophobia of her daily life. She says how wearing it is to find oneself always sitting at the same table with the same food, how tormenting to retire every night to the same bed, always to breathe the same air, always to conduct the same conversations and see the same faces. So a remarkably pragmatic and honest account of what it was really like. Uh, and although she acknowledges at numerous points that her material conditions are much better than an awful lot of other women, she cannot overcome her resistance to the lack of freedom. For her, that is the absolutely worst thing about her incarceration, is her inability to leave the convent. Uh, she says, if a treacherous hand captures a bird and imprisons it, even in a golden cage fed on dainty morsels, it nonetheless is always watching seeking with its beak to create a gap for an escape to freedom. If it ever succeeds, it gladly abandons its morsels and cage adornments 
and jubilantly returns to enjoy solitude and windy currents, risking death rather than safe in a cage, its liberty compromised. So for Tarabotti, the key to emancipating women from this system is extremely modern, really. It's education. She herself is an energetic autodidact. She reads everything she can get her hands on. There's been some very interesting research done by a colleague of mine in London about how Tarabotti got hold of books. And the seemingly, uh, you know, by very underhand means, people brought them in, in under baskets of peaches, snuck them under the grill to her, and she carried them away and hid them in her cell. And she read everything, <laughs> absolutely everything, including everything that a nun was not supposed to be reading in 17th century Italy. And she rightly says that education is the way out of this situation. Uh, <clears throat> education will allow women to make a positive contribution to society and therefore to have a place in wider society and not need to be shut away as a problem uh, in this way. She says, oh, that was a rather nice slide of a woman reading a Bible, but I'll pop over that. Don't scorn the quality of women's intellect if they seem crude in conversation and unwise in their opinions. It's your fault for shutting them in their rooms denying them the opportunity to study or be taught any subject at all. It is you men who jealously deny them the means to educate themselves. Strikingly modern views, also derived from her own bitter experience, uh, it's been the opportunity for education and the time for writing and reading that really has saved Tarabotti. It's what keeps her sane and it's what keeps her connected with the outside world. She writes hundreds of letters, um, Many of them gathered together and published in her uh, published letter book. Um, and she says that it's writing that is her lifeline. Um, I used a quote from, uh, from this part of her correspondence as the title for this talk. So in a letter to a, a dear friend of hers, Betta Polani, who was her best friend at Sant'Anna, but then rather late in the day was suddenly taken out and married so that Tarabotti was left completely alone, um, she says... Ceasing to write would be impossible for me. In this prison and in my recent illness, there's nothing else that gives me pleasure. I've lost my dearest friends. I'm just a shadow here without you. And if I did not have this activity, I would already be dead. Only an inked pain can lessen, pen, sorry, can lessen my pain. Uh, Tarabotti had a very wide network of correspondence. She was very canny in her letter writing. She understood that because she couldn't get out into the world, she absolutely needed a network of supporters on the outside who would help her to get into print. Uh, she targeted her letters to influential men with contacts in the literary world, got them on side through flattery, and then pleaded with them until they helped her get her books published. Notably, a number of her books were published outside Italy and under pseudonyms. So her network was really working quite hard for her, including taking manuscripts abroad, having them published in Nuremberg and Leiden, and places where there was a, an appetite to publish these very, very controversial books. She also uses her letters to denounce her detractors, because as with most women writers from this period, voices are raised saying, it's not possible for women to write this well. These books must be by a man. And uh, she, uh, she uses her letters as an opportunity to disprove uh, those theories by saying, here I am writing to you, see how beautifully I write. You are receiving this letter from me, so you know it's my voice, and then publishing the letter. 
uh, in a letter to uh, this woman, Guida Scania Orsi, who's actually uh, another noblewoman writer. She says, to go into print, you have to have an iron will, since all men wish to speak out against us and obstinately refuse to allow that a woman might know how to write without their help. So in short, Talabotti was an agile operator. She understood that she couldn't act alone. She understood that she needed support. Uh, and we see this reflected uh, in her published letter book. Um, in fact, she had a number of very um, important roles within the convent. She was appointed by the other nuns to run their uh, lace-making business. They made a particularly fine kind of lace in her convent, and Tarabotti organized all the sales negotiations. She was a pretty hard-headed negotiator. She got them a good price. She also negotiates marriages for girls who are in the convent, not yet having taken their vows and desperately want to get out again. We find letters where she's looking around for anybody who's willing to take on this girl and help her get back out again. Now, when I talk about Tarabotti with my students at Cambridge, uh, they often ask a very intriguing question, which is a one that I don't yet have an answer for, but I think uh, needs an answer, really. And it's the question of uh, how did she get away with it? How was she able to carry on writing despite the incredibly controversial nature of the books that she produced? Uh, how was she able to voice these truths that nobody admitted to? And when we discuss this together, uh, my students are generally convinced that the other nuns at Santana must have been 100% behind her, that she must have had the support of her convent uh, although we don't have any records to support this yet. Uh, why else would the other nuns have elected her to run their business for them? Why else would they have put her in charge of the education of the young girls who were housed at Santana to be taught to read and write, given that she was likely to introduce them to books that were not altogether appropriate or ideas that might not be altogether appropriate? Uh, how could she have otherwise obtained the books that she clearly had? How could she have been allowed to send and receive so many letters which kept her going, which sustained her? So we only hear Arcangela's voice in this case, but I can't help thinking that she probably speaks for a silent majority, that there were women who remained silent behind her, but who allowed her to speak for them. Um, and I think her, her voice, which is strikingly modern, reminds us very keenly of how we must always work when we're doing this kind of historical research to get behind the established narratives, the official histories that tell us that 99.99% of girls, when interviewed by the bishop, told their bishop that they went to the convent willingly and of their own volition, that we have to work much harder to get underneath that story, out the other side, and see what sits behind it. And very strident voices like Arcangela Tarabotti's are really, really useful to us in that regard. So are the more dutiful and quieter voices of women like Margarita Mamiani, who I introduced you to earlier on. What they do is they unsettle us from our assumptions about the past. They force us to think in a slightly uh, less easy, less comfortable way, perhaps. So I don't have anything more to say, but I believe that the practice is that you can ask me anything you want and that 
microphones will rove up and down, so I do hope you will ask me some questions. Oh, uh, this lady in the front row, yeah. Thank you. Um, was, was entering the convent these, the only alternative for these women? Was there nothing like um, becoming a, a governess, say, or a companion, or a higher level servant? And I've got another little question as well. What about the, the lower levels of society? What happened to, 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 to women there in these straightened times? Right. Uh, okay, I'll take those in order then. Um, <clears throat> it becomes easier later in the 18th century for women to remain at large, if you like, in society without being safely married. In the 16th and 17th centuries, there's a huge amount of paranoia about unmarried women. Um, and this includes about widows, actually. If a woman's husband dies, that woman becomes a social problem. Uh, she's independently wealthy, and she doesn't have a male controlling sort of... And what would often happen to a widow is that she would go into a convent as a sort of secular guest for the rest of her life, like a, a quite nice hotel, really. You'd pay a, a, a monthly stipend and you'd live there and that would be an acceptable thing to do if you weren't going to marry again. Marrying again was also a little bit... Especially if your husband was younger than you. Um, <laughs> but uh, for, for younger women, remaining outside the convent was not... Uh, a social option. And this is really down to the fact, I think it all comes back to Aristotle, to be honest. It's down to the fact that at this stage, the understanding, of, I mean, fundamental understanding of women was based on Aristotelian ideas about how uh, people are generated. When you generate, when you have a perfect act of generation, you create a male. If the act of generation is in some way aborted or retarded or unfinished, you create a female. A female doesn't have any genitals because she hasn't been finished. They're all up inside her still. Uh, and so she needs genitals, which means that she is sexually voracious. And because women are sexually voracious, they have to be put away. If you keep them out in, at loose, at large, they will run amok and have sex with everything they encounter that has <laughs> genitals. This is what Aristotle wrote about human generation, and this was still at the basis of medical understanding of female anatomy in this period. So it was still, it was a big social concern. And uh, lower class women, well, uh, people were less concerned about the morals of lower class women, but also there were more marriage opportunities for lower class women because this, this uh, policy of kind of wealth conservation wasn't at work lower down society. So where it really hits hard is in the higher echelons of society. Actually, uh, they could to an extent, although interesting research has been done that shows that in the Middle Ages, women were lower down the social scale, were kind of more involved in running family businesses and things than they were later on uh, for a variety of reasons. And of course, the problem with talking about Italy <laughs> is that it was ununified in this period, and every single Italian state has a slightly different sort of practice and a different kind of set of circumstances. But generally, uh, there was less restriction on marriage lower down society. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think this gentleman here was next. Um, I quite by chance got a copy of David Sobel's edition 
Galileo's daughter's yes. um, letters, letters from the convent, which yes. is very interesting because yes. I hadn't realised that they could pay for their way and get a better sell yeah. if they had the money for it. Yeah. Would you say that this was representative of the sort of convent life? Yes, absolutely. And uh, working class girls who went into convents and couldn't afford the monthly stipend worked as servants for the upper class girls. So there was a clear social hierarchy within the convent. A really aristocratic girl might make her servants also become nuns and come in with her so that they could continue to serve her on the inside. <laughs> um, so yes, there was a, a clear hierarchy, especially within certain convents had reputations for being convents for the gentility. And sometimes they would be dominated by a small number of local noble families who would place all there. And then you would have the lower strata of nuns who acted, you know, tended the gardens, etc., etc. Um, and yes, you could upgrade. Um, the stipend for being a nun was not peanuts. I mean, it was, it did cost you. Uh, which was why it wasn't an option for destitute women to become nuns, to kind of save themselves from destitution, really. Uh, but it was an awful lot cheaper than a, a marriage dowry. Thank you. Um, I don't know who was next. Maybe the lady here? Given you found some evidence for... Um, the reading that she was doing, what evidence do you have for who was reading her, particularly women? Ah, who was reading Tarabotti um, is a very good question. Uh, <coughs> there has been a, a suggestion that Tarabotti knew another um, very prolific writer from Venice in the same period who was a woman called Lucrezia Marinella. Uh, Venice is a really interesting case study for women becoming kind of educationally emancipated in this period because Venice had, um, Venice had a closed list of nobility. So in the 13th century, they basically drew up a list of all the noble families in Venice, and then they said, from this point on, if you're not on the list, you can't come in. So there was no upward mobility in Venetian society, but there was an awful lot of money um, because of very, very uh, active and... and um, fruitful trade routes with, with North Africa, and, you know, Venice was a big port, and they were sending ships out. So there were lots of mercantile families in Venice making a lot of money, but they couldn't socially reinvent themselves, so they spent it on education. And that included educating their daughters. So you get a lot of women being educated in Venice to a much higher degree than elsewhere, and uh, this creates a kind of extraordinary phenomenon, actually. So the number of women printing literature of their own authorship in Venice in this period is totally out of whack with the whole of the rest of Europe um, and really skews the statistics. The, the statistics for Italy, if we just take the 16th century, there are something like 250 published works by women in Italy in the 16th century. In England in the same century, eight. So that gives you an example uh, of how, and that was really Venice that threw that that number way up. Um, the next highest after Italy is France, which had 30-something in the same century. So it really is totally... And the other really interesting thing is this is precisely in the period when the Catholic Church is clamping down. And if you think in kind of a stereotypical way about Italy in the late 16th and 17th century, you think counter-reformation, lack of opportunity to express yourself you know, the church breathing down your neck, legislating about your life. Who's heard of a 17th century Italian author? But actually, 
within that very environment, women were kind of exploding onto the scene as cultural protagonists. Lucrezia Marinella wrote also some very, very outspoken defences of the female sex. And there are suggestions in some of her works that she's reading Tarabotti. There are also suggestions that she's reading, like Tarabotti, the same translations of the classical authors. So she's reading Venetian translations of, of, of Greek and Latin writers in order to inform her text in the same way, to, so to have the same kind of cultural markers. Of course, whether or not she met Tarabotti, we haven't got any evidence for. Um, Tarabotti doesn't include any letters to Marinella in her uh, letter book, and she does strategically place letters to sort of substantial women in there. So she's very aware of the need to network with other women. So, <clears throat> no, that hasn't really been tracked. One of the things to do, I think, is to look at library inventories and find out where her text ended up. Uh, my hunch is that that may well be outside Italy as much as it was in Italy, because a lot of her works were published in Protestant Europe, actually. Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> um, down here. To what extent was this type of practice occurring in other parts of Europe at, the, at that time? You mean uh, enforced vocations? Yes. Uh, well, the, uh, the, the kind of comparable example about which I don't know very much is Spain. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, this is a time of incredible religious upheaval across Europe. So uh, in northern Europe, all the nuns are leaving the convents and going and getting married. And in, in you know, southern Europe, uh, they're being enclosed. So, uh, uh, but I haven't studied this, the Spanish material, but I would see that as the kind of comparative example for Italy. Yeah. Thank you. Yes? Uh, okay. Um, I just wondered where the records of Tarabotti's writings were found, because obviously the authorities must have burnt them at the time, if they could. I mean, how did so much survive? Where did it turn up? Ah, well, this is the really, really useful thing about the Inquisition, is that they were very good record keepers. They didn't. I mean, they, they might have destroyed copies that the general public had, but they, they kept their own records really tightly. Uh, you, you can find out a huge amount about this period in Italian history from inquisitional records. They kept full records of, um, of, of all the trials that took place. They, took, they kept full records of all the, the censorship that was taking place. Um, and then there are the indexes of prohibited books. So any item that ends up on an index of prohibited books is stored in the Inquisitional archive. So they're very, very useful to historians and literary historians like me for, for precisely this kind of information. Um, Tarabotti, the, the, um, the copy of the Inferno Monacale was found in the Venetian archive in manuscript and identified by an Italian historian, in fact, uh, in the late 80s. So... Uh, I, I'm sorry, I have no idea what the pecking order is, so really just... <laughs> Thank you. From, from what you're saying, it seems that the abbess would have the, the biggest amount of political clout mm. and be able to interface with the public. Mm. Do you have any evidence of them being able to do any changes or the abbess of Tarabotti's convent? Because obviously she must have allowed that to go through. Uh, I haven't really seen very much about Sant'Anna, where Tarabotti was, but there's lots of evidence from the period of abbesses acting politically, uh, particularly to try to um, 
overturn uh, decisions that are made uh, by the local bishop about, you know, what the, the convent can and can't do. Uh, so after enclosure is enforced at Trent, uh, there's a big inspection in Venice, for example, where they go around all the convents and they say, this doorway is too wide, these windows are too low, you have to brick up this entrance, etc., etc. And then the, the abbesses really go into action, and they, they, including things like taking delegations of their most senior nuns and marching across the city to see the bishop demand an audience. Um, things like in Bologna, uh, a group of nuns who, who kept a sacred image in their convent, which they used to process through the streets on a yearly basis. After enclosure, the procession became impossible, but they wanted to keep hold of the image, and the local bishop ruled that the image should be taken from the convent and lodged somewhere else where it could be taken out and processed, and the nuns flew into an absolute frenzy about that. Political negotiations going over the bishop's head straight to the Vatican, and they got their way. So abbesses were powerful people, that's true. They were, um, they were the kind of front man. Or, but but Santana itself, no, and that's very frustrating because of the sense that there must have been you know, a, a, a quite a high level of support from the abbess for Tarabotti because she just brought so much of a particular kind of attention to that particular institution, yeah. Um. Um, I'm quite curious what happened to the, um, all the superfluous um, upper-class men. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, did they get to do anything? Um, you mean the ones who couldn't get married because there weren't uh, enough? Exactly, yes. <sighs> oh, I, think that, I think the men could get married, uh, generally. Uh, the um, thing about upper-class men in this period as well is they tended to have multiple wives because the wives just died in succession, usually on their fourth pregnancy. I mean, it, you know, it's absolutely a bald fact. They didn't live very long. Uh, and so what you would often do is put, put some of your other daughters in a convent, but they wouldn't take their vows. And they'd be kind of waiting <laughs> for an available nobleman, and then they'd be whipped out and, and you know, offered up. Uh, Prostitution is a very important part of social structures. So in Venice, pr the prostitution industry was world famous. I mean, there are guidebooks for English tourists going on the grand tour in the 17th century to which Venetian prostitutes offer which kinds of services so that you can check your guide before you rock up there. And, um, and the prostitutes were supported uh, financially by the Venetian state because they offered what was seen to be an extremely important function, which was that they kept the Venetian patriciate, the men, the noblemen, from turning to homosexual activity, which was considered to be, you know, the ruin of, of the state. So uh, that was the other alternative life for a woman, I suppose, <laughs> who didn't go into a convent and wasn't going to get married. Uh, there's a very interesting writer from the late 16th century in Italy called Veronica Franco, who was a very high-class courtesan um, uh, and, and, a, and a writer. Beautiful poetry, fabulous powerful, erotic, uh, punchy political poetry, which she wrote as part of her kind of salon activities. Uh, as perhaps might be expected, once she was over the hill, her career was over. She died in total penury in the kind of worst part of Venice. But she had a, a, an amazing career for a period. So it was possible for a woman to, you know, rise up through the social hierarchies through that line of work as well. <laughs> Should we have one from this side? Yeah.
Thank you. Um, uh, just a very quick one. I wondered if any of Arcangela's writings are available to read in English and uh, purchase in this country. Uh, in English, uh, yes. There is uh, an edition which is published by Chicago University Press, which does a wonderful series called The Other Voice in Early Modern Europe. And it's basically women writers from across Europe, but obviously dominated by the Italians because of the numbers I gave you earlier, um, which has published, uh, I think, one and one forthcoming editions of Tarabotti's works. So, um, and those might even be parallel texts, I think, with the Italian and then English on a facing page. But if not, then they are English translations. They also have really very good introductions, um, which kind of situate you before you start reading. And then you can read my own translation of another woman writer called Vittoria Colonna, who was entirely, um, uh, actually ended up in a convent when she was a widow, but of her own volition. But yes, yeah, so that, that would be the place to go, Chicago University Press. Uh, should we take someone from the middle? I feel it's being neglected. <laughs> so, lady in the red cardigan, I think the <laughs> microphone is coming your way. It's getting a sore arm. <laughs> um, the, mon the convents seem to have been full up. Was there anything equivalent happening to men, that some men would have been put into monasteries in a similar sort of way? Do you know anything? I don't think they would have been forced. Uh, and monasteries were not enclosed with the same um, fervour. So uh, a monastic life would not have entailed the same kinds of sacrifices. But I don't actually know what happened to um, populations of monks in the period. I would need to look at the kind of, you know, the, the population waves to see whether there was a, a rise in the same period. Um, I would be surprised if there was. I mean, uh, going, going to be a monk was a very noble and, and, and worthwhile sort of occupation. Taking holy orders was absolutely standard if you were a nobleman. You'd have all sorts of, you know, little benefices here and there, which paid you a nice income. They didn't necessarily mean that you ever went there or involved yourself in the religious life of that community. But uh, becoming a monk, I would be surprised if there was the same kind of spiking. I mean, this really was a phenomenon that impacted on women. Yeah. Yes? I think that you might be the last question, oh, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I wondered what the life expectancy was of women in convents. You know, I thought someone would ask me that. Tarabotti was 48. And I think that was... She had some kind of um, lung problem late in life, so she was having a lot of breathing difficulties. But I think that that was probably pretty good. Uh, if you got married and survived childbirth, uh, Vittoria Colonna, who I've written a lot about, was 51. These are women who didn't have children. There have been some very interesting books. There's a book called Holy Anorexia by a, a colleague of mine in the States about anorexia within convents from a slightly earlier period actually the kind of female mystic who starves herself and has visions and uh, whether that was a, a, a phenomenon that affected life expectancy or not I don't know I think I mean generally the life expectancy of women in convents would be probably they probably have a decade on their on their secular counterparts just because of the incredibly high rates of death in childbirth so on that gruesome note <laughs>
the screen tells me we have 20 seconds left, so thank you so much. It's really stimulating to have all these wonderful questions. Thank you.